For me, it, it goes back to the idea that we need to be active in our in our government and in our society. Mm. That if we don't speak up, then who will? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Connecting ALS. I'm your host, Mike Stevenson, from the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. We had the good fortune of lining up three fantastic guests on a variety of topics this month. We first brought in Dr. Sam Miser to explore the benefits of palliative care following an ALS diagnosis. That was followed by a heartwarming phone conversation with Minnesota Twins icon, Kent Herbeck, where he opened up about his family's experience with the disease. And the episode wraps up with some valuable first-hand insight from Stacey Lufkin about her journey as an ALS caregiver and fierce advocate for the cause. Dr. Samuel Miser is a neurologist who is as highly regarded for his compassionate communication as he is for his technical expertise. I asked him to explain why palliative care can be an effective addition to an ALS care plan, and here's what he had to say. I am joined in studio by Dr. Sam Miser, the medical director of the ALS Center of Excellence at Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis. Dr. Miser, welcome to Connecting ALS, and thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. In addition to leading one of the most respected clinics in the Midwest, Dr. Miser is a well-known expert in the field of palliative care, and that's what we'd like to discuss during our time today. Dr. Miser, for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with that term, could you first explain the concept of palliative care? Sure, yeah. Palliative care is a medical specialty, just like any other specialty, like neurology or cardiology. And it's a specialty that sees and takes care of any patient with a serious illness. Mm. So the serious illness can be cancer, or heart failure, or a stroke, or of course, ALS. Mm-hmm. And palliative care is most optimally delivered in a multidisciplinary fashion, just like the ALS clinics are. And so members of the team are the physicians, nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, social workers, chaplains psychologists. And what we do for patients with serious illness is we provide an extra layer of support. And what do do I mean by support? I mean, we can do symptom management, more complex symptom management, pain, shortness of breath, anxiety. And the other main thing that we do in palliative care is we help navigate someone's serious illness by having a serious illness conversation Mm -hmm. or conversations And so that might include delivering difficult news or delivering bad news or making sure they understand their illness, uh, their prognosis, what what to expect in the future. And at the heart of all of this, really get to know the person with the illness, what matters most to them, and and help them navigate sometimes difficult decisions Mm -hmm. for the future or for the present in the setting of of their serious illness. Right. And sometimes this revolves around medical documents like healthcare directives, living wills, or the POST form, the Provider Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we're not, we're not just, we're not just end-of-life. Palliative care is not end-of-life only. Uh, we see anyone with a serious illness at any stage of the serious illness. But I shouldn't hide the fact that we, we know hospice very well, too. And so it's helping decide when that might be helpful to a patient and their family. So that's a long answer, but no. it's a 
It's a complex field. That's a great answer. You, you, you really got into some depth there that I wanted to ask you about. And you mentioned hospice. I get the impression that there is some anxiety around the term palliative care. When some people hear it, they maybe assume that end of life is very near and that there is some confusion with hospice care. Can you talk a bit about the differences between those two? So it's easier to start with hospice. Hospice is a very specific entity. It's driven by insurance a lot of times. It's defined by insurance. And so it is for patients where the doctors taking care of them think they may have six months of life left mm. in, in, in an estimate. Roughly, yeah. For, from whatever their disease might be. And it's a philosophy of care that says, we're going to focus on your quality of life and your symptom management, trying to maximize your function, knowing that time is getting short because we think it's less than six months or so. And we're going to optimize your quality of life and not do things to you that are just to prolong life, for example. And so it is determined by insurance and it comes with a philosophy. That's hospice. Palliative care is different in that hospice is a part of palliative care. But palliative care can happen in when someone has a serious illness, that cure might be a possibility or that they're doing life prolonging treatments, you know, going through chemotherapy or getting a ventilator or whatever it might be, things that are prolonging their life. And so palliative care can be at any stage of this disease. And in my opinion, especially in a disease like ALS, palliative care kind of starts at the beginning. Okay. You know, until we get the cure that we're all hoping for and waiting for for ALS, because of the nature of ALS, palliative care really can or should begin at the very, very beginning and support them along the way and then help recognize when hospice is appropriate. So it, it is, a, it is a, a scary term and right. people shouldn't be afraid of it. We're generally nice people right. that really care about our patients, but there is this social understanding that it is time is near, people are giving up on you, that right. kind of thing. Yeah. And that was actually my next question about when it's appropriate to introduce palliative care. And you go into initial visits with some of your patients who are living with ALS thinking like, we're going to start this conversation now, or does it depend on the individual and where they're at and their progression that you kind of gauge when it makes sense to have that conversation? Yeah. So it, it is very much individualized and personalized. Mm -hmm. You do have to read the room and let the patient guide you. Sometimes I'll they will ask or I'll ask them how much they want to know and the timing of the conversation. But almost always I, I start some of the really serious conversations earlier in the disease to start a, a roadmap. And so, you know, when the sometimes the first visit I meet them or the second or third visit, we start introducing these concepts of advanced directives and planning for the future. Meanwhile, recognizing that palliative care is not only just symptom management, but a lot of... Uh, communication skills around difficult conversations. And so in many ways, at least in my clinic, I'm starting my to use my palliative care skills almost immediately when I meet them. But the fundamentals of palliative care, like the, the advanced directives and having a serious illness conversation is very individualized and, and you have to kind of meet the patient where they are. And that's what I like about palliative care. It's really trying to know the person in front of you and their family and trying to individualize it to them. Sure. You knew, obviously, that you were going to go into a neurological field. What was it that led you down this path in medicine, Dr. Miser? Why did you decide to pursue uh, specialty like palliative care? Yeah, I think it was in training where I love neurology. I love the brain. It's fascinating. And more importantly, I love the people that 
have the diseases and, and trying to get to know them and take care of them. And I, I recognized there were conversations happening with patients and their families, and sometimes they went well and sometimes they didn't go well. And I would try to reflect, why did that conversation go well and why did this conversation not go well? And what I started to learn is that when the conversations were going well, it was usually by a physician or a provider that had some skills with communication. Uh They knew how to have these conversations. Uh And once I realized that that's the bulk of palliative care training, I realized if I'm going to take care of patients with neurologic diseases, especially serious ones like ALS, then I owe it to my patients and their families to get those skills. And so then I knew I had to do a, a year of fellowship in palliative care where I would learn how to have these conversations, how to talk about the serious things so that I can match that with my my career in neurology. Yeah, well, it's a really noble choice, and I know one that not a ton of doctors make, so kudos to you for making that decision, particularly as a young doctor. We had Dr. Teriyaki on our last episode, and she not only spoke highly of uh, your practice, but also expressed her belief that palliative care really should be a part of all uh, ALS clinics. I imagine you agree with her on that front, (laughs) but can you uh, say a little bit more about specific benefits of including this type of care and plans for those living with ALS? Yeah, so I think what Dr. Teriyaki is referencing is some of what I've talked about so far, which is knowing how to start these conversations. And what I, I guess what I mean about that, diving into more detail, is when you have ALS or are being told you have ALS, you can imagine that it comes with so much emotion. Mm-hmm. You're, you're afraid, you might be angry, you're sad, you might feel guilty, whatever it might be. And palliative care, is, I think, turns the framing and the thinking about the physician-patient relationship. Because I think when there are a lot of physicians, and it was me early in my training, where if, there was, if someone was crying or um, upset, sort of the first thing you want to do is get them to stop so you can leave the room, right? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what palliative care does, it says, well, I'm going to do everything I can with my skills to stay in the room with the person because this is what they need me now. I need to sit in there. I want them to fully explain and explore and express their emotions because I'm not going to be able to get to the meat of the conversation about what we actually do for ALS until we talk about this. And I don't mean to say I understand what it's like to have ALS. I, I, I can't imagine how hard it is to hear it but I want them to feel safe. And so that, that's one part of it, is, is sort of taking that and sort of spreading it out throughout the whole course of their illness, saying, let's talk about what's happening now. What, what are the challenges and what it's like to live with ALS? Hear about it, maybe the emotions behind it, and then we can continue to move on in the conversation. So that's, that's one piece of it. And I think that's really important when dealing with a serious illness like ALS to be able to respond to their emotion and then be able to try to explain the disease in a way that makes sense. That's one other piece. And the other thing, which I think is really hard to do, but really important, is for the physicians taking care of these patients to help make recommendations. And the only way to make recommendations is to fully understand the person behind the disease. Mm. You know, what matters most to them? What, uh, what are they worried about? What are they hoping for? And then when they're facing really complex decisions like feeding tubes and uh-huh. breathing tubes, uh-huh. how do we then help guide them make these decisions? And that, that's sort of, even outside of ALS, sort of the bread and butter of what we do. And we kind of refer to it as goals of care. And that what you do is you take the medical reality 
what's happening to the person, match it with their values and their wishes and their fears and their hopes, and then come up with a medical plan and recommendation that makes sense for them. And I think that's that's a huge part. I think the other thing, and I think Dr. Teriyaki talked about this, which I really agree, and sort of the individualized and personalized part of medicine, the place we're lacking is getting palliative care more into the community. Mm. Because I can do it in the clinic, but I'm just in the clinic. I don't, yeah. I don't leave. I don't have the team that leaves. Right. And I think that's sort of the future that I would like to see is a more community presence. Palliative care falls under a larger umbrella of medicine known as compassionate care. And uh, clearly, I don't have to tell you how important compassion is to families facing a neurological disease like ALS. But I met a number of individuals who have visited with you in your clinic, and it's almost always the first thing that they mention describing both the kind of doctor and the kind of person that you are, Dr. Miser. You must really value compassion in your work. And is that something that you talk to your clinicians about so that there's kind of an overall philosophy there and saying, here's how we're going to treat people. Here's how we're going to meet them on their journey living with ALS so that you have kind of that holistic vibe, I guess, in your clinic? I don't think I could take credit for the clinic. I think the people that I work with, I'm so fortunate for. It's part of the job I love the most. I think what I can do is try to do my part because I think if, if we're all we're all in it, together, meaning the team, taking care of patients. And so I think if I display that compassion and talk about things with compassion and they do the same, then that becomes sort of the accepted or expected way to to take care of our patients. And so it's certainly a culture that I enjoy. I mean, I, it's, being an ALS neurologist is a, the greatest job that I love and hate at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I love it because of the, the patients and families I get to meet. And I love it because of the, the team. I work with because I think they all do have their their heart in, in it and they're, and they're compassionate. And I think I play my role as the physician and then they play their roles as the other members of the team. And I think we have a shared sort of compassion. It may not be, you know, something we talk about necessarily, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I think it just shows in our words and our team meetings and the way we, we take care of patients. And um, yeah. It very much seems to be ingrained in that clinic and and the folks that you work with. (laughs) One of my last questions for you is related to telehealth. Mm. And the topic we've kind of danced around quite a bit here on connecting ALS. And we'll probably address it in an upcoming episode in, in real depth. But we've outlined some of the benefits of telemedicine as well as some of the limitations, things that simply can't be accomplished during a telehealth visit as well as some that can. But I imagine a lot of what goes into palliative care can probably be achieved through a video conference type environment. Is that accurate? I think so. Yeah, I I mean, palliative care is very Mm relationship-based. And so I think the biggest barrier to palliative care, doing palliative care through telehealth, Mm -hmm. is if you're meeting someone for the first time over a computer screen. Right. Because we're so relationship-based. But we've been doing telehealth visits at Hennepin for a couple of years now. And the times where it's most successful, especially if I'm having hard conversations with families, You know, they benefit because they're in their kitchen and I get to see them in their their normal living situation. But we're having a serious conversation about hospice and, and death and dying. Mm-hmm. And it's worked because I have that relationship with them. And so I think telehealth and palliative care go very nicely together, actually. Mm-hmm. I think we could reach a very broad range of people in the rural community or urban community who have the limited mobility mm. to have these serious conversations, these serious illness conversations and having it be meaningful. The thing that we don't get is sort of the, the personal touch, right. you know, being able to just 
whatever that feels comfortable to you. Yeah. But the times we've been doing it at Hannah Penn, it's worked. And we've had reasonably good feedback saying, yeah, it was an acceptable alternative right. to having to come into the clinic. And so I think telehealth is the future. And I think palliative care is a natural place to utilize that technology. Sure. In talking about those telehealth visits, is there anything that you do to kind of break down those barriers of being on a video call, knowing that you're not in the room with them and you don't have that same quite as intimate experience? Is there anything that you kind of think about going into that? Like, here's how I'll address that. Yeah, I think some of it's very um, practical, such as looking into the camera, mm. right? So I can see myself and if I'm looking at my computer screen, so I often have their medical record open so that I can remember things and be accurate. But then what they see is me looking off to the side. And yeah. so it, something sim simple would be being very mindful of actually looking at the camera. So I appear as if I'm looking at them, right? right? I, I think it's important to make sure that whoever needs to be in that conversation is there. Mm -hmm. So if there's a family member who's living out of state, how can we use the technology to get them into the visit? Right. Right. So even though they aren't in the same room, but getting the key players of the family into the same visit is really mm -hmm. important. And then I guess it's, yeah, it's something similar to what we, I always do is using the same sort of relationship-based communication skills, just being mindful of how I appear on yeah. sort of on camera on yeah. their screen to try to uh, have it f still feel like an intimate experience. Sure. That's great. Thank you. My last question related to the evolution of palliative care. So oftentimes when we're speaking to neurologists about the future of ALS and how obviously we're hopeful that new treatments are coming down the line soon and that people living with the disease will have longer periods of higher quality of life in the near future. How do you think palliative care will evolve? Will there be any kind of dramatic changes you think in the coming years, assuming that we're going to be living with treatments that will extend the lives of people living with ALS? Yeah, I think if there is, I mean, it's, it's, it's already needed right now. But as you allude to, if we have treatments that can really extend the length of life, all the more important to realize that if they have more life, it needs to be good quality of life, mm -hmm. their function and their quality. And so to make that feasible or to make it happen, what we need is community-based palliative care. And it's, it's starting. It's some places do it better. Okay. And what I mean by that is using this multidisciplinary team of palliative care, like I talked about earlier, not only in the clinic or the hospital, mm -hmm. but where the person is most of the time, in their home. Mm. Having some of the members of the team actually go there, maybe using telehealth, but actually having some physical members going to the team. And, and it's not necessarily palliative care, but it's sort of this home care idea. How can we actually give more care in the home mm. to the patient and also their caregivers? Because there's so much stress on the caregivers. And that is exactly what palliative care likes to focus on too, is the effect on the people around the person with the disease. So the caregiver stress and burnout. Mm. And I feel like if patients are living longer, but even, even now, mm -hmm. we could do a better job providing more care in the community, in their homes, or closer to their home, in a way that focuses on symptom management and giving some help to the family and still having these difficult conversations, knowing that 
maybe it's going to be more spread out if they are what we're hoping for, living long, living longer in a meaningful way. Right. So I feel like that's sort of the future. Because I think in the hospital, we have it pretty set. Mm -hmm. In the clinics, I think we do need more of it, like Dr. Teriyaki alluded to. Mm -hmm. In more clinics, having it either in the clinic or having it very accessible. But the, the hardest, but one of the most important next steps has to be in the community. Sure. Dr. Miser, thank you very much for shedding some light on a very important uh, subject in this segment. We really appreciate you taking the time and for being with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Baseball fans and Twins fanatics in particular remember Ken Herbeck as the big swinging lefty first baseman who was one of the stars of the World Series teams of 87 and 91. And if you're familiar with our chapter of the ALS Association, you've probably seen or heard Kent advocating for the cause at some point over the last several decades. But not everyone is aware of just how large of a role he has played at this organization and how many lives he has impacted in the ALS community. He graciously agreed to spend some time looking back at his own experiences and expressing his hope for the future. We are thrilled to be joined on the phone this morning by Twins baseball great and state of Minnesota legend, Mr. Kent Herbeck. Good morning, Kent. Thanks for being here on Connecting ALS. Yeah, great to be on and, and uh, happy to talk about whatever we, we want to go after here today. Sure, sure. We'll get into a few things. I know many of our listeners are huge Twins fans and would probably be upset with me if I didn't ask for your thoughts on the fantastic first half of the season, but I think we'll save that for the end of the segment because... I want to get into your involvement, obviously, with this cause and why ALS has played a significant role in your life. I'm not sure how many folks are aware, but you actually lost your father to this disease back in 1982. Can you tell us what you remember about that time and learning about your dad's diagnosis? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, playing baseball and, you know, it becoming my career at the time. I signed with the Minnesota Twins back in 1978 after I graduated from high school. So knowing the, the baseball connection with Lou Gehrig and knowing and hearing about Lou Gehrig's disease, and in 1981, I was playing in Visalia, California on the Twins minor league team. And I was called by them in May by my parents in May of 1981 and was told that my father was diagnosed with ALS because me not being home, I had no idea what was going on, but he had started having some problems with some walking issues and talking issues and, you know, stumbling once in a while, slurring his speech a little bit. And they wanted to find out what was going on. And they found out through a couple of different tests that he had come down with ALS. And, you know, they, of course, they really never called it ALS back then. They, they more or less called it Lou Gehrig's disease, which now we we call it ALS because people have become more familiar with it. But uh, sure. So yeah, that was the first time I heard it, and you know, I I was playing in the minor leagues at the time, and and I told them, well, I'm coming home, and my dad said right away, no, you're not. You're mm. staying out there to play baseball because that's you know what you wanted to do, and and I'm right. I want you to continue doing that. Yeah. So I really didn't read up much on it. I kind of knew about Lou Gehrig's struggles back in his day. You know, he was the Iron Iron Man and played mm -hmm. so many games and all of a sudden this disease just cut his career short and he eventually aided in his passing at an early age so i knew it wasn't good mm -hmm. my father and mother and, and sister at the time had come out then and i think it was june late june i think it was they came out to see me play out in, in visalia california mm -hmm. so i you know i got to see what my father was going through and this and that and then uh 
you know, I got lucky enough to get called up in 1981 in August and came back home and, you know, started my career with the Minnesota Twins and was happy to get home. But then again, saddened for the fact that I knew my father was, was, you know, had been diagnosed with ALS and with, you know, it's inevitable that sooner or later the, the person dies from ALS. So I was kind of mm-hmm. in two, <laughs> having, having such a, uh, a high for, for making it to the major leagues, but also finding out that my, and, and knowing that my father was passing away from ALS. So no, it was definitely a, uh, um, kind of a tough thing to go through. And I was at a high because I made it, but still upset and sad because of my father's diagnosis. So, he got to see me play that year. I, I stayed with the Twins in 82. And then in September of 82, my father passed away. So, and, and then kind of, there wasn't really a lot for him to do. There was a couple as far as treatment and this and that. At the time at the University of Minnesota, there was a support group. And that was about it. And people didn't really know there was really no place to go or no, nobody to get a hold of other than that little support group. Yeah. And it was a very tiny group of people. So I guess we kind of, I didn't take it upon myself. I just had talked to a few people that I had bumped into at different ALS events. They're not events, but some national people. Mm-hmm. And we started a golf tournament. I, I decided to try to do a golf tournament to raise some money for it. Because, mm-hmm. there were, like I said, there was really no fundraising efforts at all at the time. This was back in, I think it was 84, I believe, was our first golf tournament. We were 84, 85. And from that day forward, <laughs> we've done a lot of fundraising programs for ALS. And yeah, so it's, yeah, it, it was kind of a, not that I wanted to, to, <laughs> to help fight ALS and not that I was guilted into doing it because of right. my father, but wanted to do something. And that's kind of how the whole thing started. Yeah. And that experience, Kent, watching your dad go through that and face those challenges without the kind of supportive services and programs that are available today that clearly informed your decision to help found this chapter of the ALS Association here in Minnesota and now serving the Dakotas as well. I mean, that the chapter was founded back in 1993. We just last year recognized our 25th anniversary. And you, you spoke a little bit about it, but what do you recall about those early conversations and really kind of the beginning of what would become this chapter of the ALS Association here in the Twin Cities? You know, just by our fundraising events and getting different people involved or chatting with different people all along in the, in the 80s during my golf tournament and bumping into different people. Most of the people I talked to were probably from the New York area. I had mm-hmm. gone to a couple events out in New York that were fundraising events. And I know my father had lost his speech and he really had a hard time with that because he couldn't communicate. And mm-hmm. I had met a gentleman here, Larry Singh, in Minneapolis at the time. And he and a couple other people were talking about, you know, the computers to do some sort of, you know, help talking and, and started up the Herbeck Singh communication program, which mm-hmm. was you know, some of our money being raised was going to help out and and get some computers made so you know they would be able to help people speak because that was what really bothered my father so much i guess was his inability to speak right and just by talking with different people we said you know let's some people came to me and we just decided to hey let's let's start up a chapter and and try to get some place where people can get some help and you know some place for our money that we were raising here locally could stay and and start something up and, and we proceeded to do that and, you know, it's grown in, in leaps and bounds. You hate to see it grow because you want to 
you want to find a cure for ALS. I keep saying that every time I go to an event or whatever, we don't want to have any more because that means that we found a cure, but Mm -hmm. you know, we're still, still going at it. And that's kind of the whole thing, I guess, in a nutshell. And it's grown to such a great organization right now. It's raised millions of dollars with different fundraisers, every kind of fundraiser you can think of, fishing, golfing, walks, snowmobile rides, you name it. They're doing it to raise money. And, and everybody that was involved with getting this thing started should be very proud of, of what they accomplished. Yeah, and you have been such a big part of that, Kent. And you mentioned the... Herbexing Communication and Assistive Device Program that uh, was, of course, named in honor of your family as well as the late Larry Singh and that program providing communication and assistive devices free of charge to individuals living with ALS. The way that that program in particular has evolved, now offering smart home technology, environmental controls, and sophisticated methods of voice banking, has it been encouraging to see that particular program area that you helped create grow in that way? Oh, yeah, because I understand what where these people are coming from when they talk about not being able to communicate. They have definitely made it a lot easier for people to do it. The first computers and stuff that we worked were a little, I don't want to say they were caveman-ish, but it was, you know, <laughs> compared to what they are now, Right. they have made great strides in that, too. So along with other, you know, different help needs that people need with ALS and, you know, the respite care for people who need help to take care of people with ALS. And I think, Mike, the biggest thing that I think I've got out of this whole deal is now when when somebody says the three letters ALS, it's almost common to hear people talk about it and, and know exactly what it is right away, which is kind of what we tried to accomplish to get the word out. And it's a feather in our cap to, to know that these people have... Uh, done what they've done and we we are happy like i said the only thing we're looking forward to next is is finding a cure that's right that's right and raising that awareness has been so paramount to the efforts of the chapter and again you're such a humble person kent but you have have really done amazing things for awareness in this state and throughout the midwest making various media appearances and the events that you talked about, things like the Blackwoods Blizzard Tour and the Kohler Toyota ALS Fishing Tournament. It really means a ton to have your influence involved with those and the way that you keep showing up and, excuse the pun, but you keep going to bat for this community. And I'm sh- I'm sure that you hear from families all the time about what it means to have you on their side in this fight. I hear it probably every time I'm at the ballpark, if I bump into somebody or maybe if I somebody asked me for an autograph or something at the ballpark or any place, I guess not even at, at the ballpark. I hear at least once or twice a week from somebody, you know, thank you so much for continuing the fight against ALS. And I know that we have made a difference and it's mattered. And I don't want to say I'm patting myself on the back for it, but it, it makes me feel a good, warm feeling inside that we, we have helped these people and they have had some place to go. And our organization has, has made that possible. Yeah, and you should. You should feel great about that. And I've heard you mention a few times before that Dave St. Peter of the Twins organization has promised you that the Twins will host the party at Target Field when we are finally able to put an end to this disease and i know that you're going to hold him to it <laughs> i definitely am it was something that dave had told me back then at the dome and said when we find a cure for this thing i'm going to open the dome up to you and you're going to have one heck of a party and <laughs> the dome's no longer but he has passed it along that uh, target field is definitely uh 
ready to have that kind of party. So we moved it from the dome over to Target Field when we do find a cure for this thing. And I think we will in my lifetime. I think it's close. It's out there along with the other help from other organizations, you know, the Alzheimer's and, and this and that. I think they're somewhat related in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. That's just my gut. And I think once they find a cure for one of those, we're all going to uh, have one big celebration at Target Field. That's right. You're absolutely right. And the progress that has been made across neurological research is encouraging. And we're inching closer every day. And you have been such a big part of that effort. So on behalf of all those families, as well as the organization, we want to thank you, Kent. And before I let you go, like I said, I would be remiss. We've got a bunch of Twins fans that listen to the podcast and they're fired up about their first place ball club and the success the team has found this year. It must be fun for you to see the bats kind of come alive and, and watch this offense carry the team the way it has uh, the first half of the season. Oh, it's been awesome. It's been a fun summer to flip the ball game on and, and watch these guys play. It's always great to be at the top. I, I was lucky enough to be on a couple World Series teams myself, and you see the fans and, and how much they enjoy it and how much they follow along, and it's amazing just the, the people wearing the Twins hats and talking Twins baseball. And yeah. It's nice to see that again. And, you know, I, I know – like you said, Dave St. Peter and the Twins, they have been so helpful in this in this fight for us, too, for ALS. They have been huge, huge supporters yes. and continue to this day to be huge supporters of, of ALS. So they're getting their calling. They're getting their due. They're playing well. It's so fun to watch. And, and this offense that they've got is – and their pitching staff has done a tremendous job, too. you got, you can't, you got to yeah. have both. You can't just have one. That's right. And it's been a uh, great ride, and, and I've enjoyed every minute of it so far. I'm, uh, as a sports fan here in, in Minnesota, we always seem like we get let down a little bit later on in the season, <laughs> but I'm, 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 I'm hoping these guys can keep it going and, and stay hot all year and, and can bring us another championship or, you know, get us into the playoffs and get us to a World Series and, and make it yeah. fun around here to watch Twins baseball. Yeah, that's right. It is. It's, it's always more fun in the Twin Cities and, and really across the region when the Twins are playing well, and it, it brings a little excitement to the summer. And, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Twins organization and the support that they've given the ALS Association and our cause. Major League Baseball has been so great to us and, and really helped us in raising funding and awareness for the disease. Exactly. Yes, they have been, they have been huge, 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 huge. I just, like I said, I want to thank not only the volunteers and everybody that's helped in all the different events, but you know, people up in the Duluth, the Colquist people, that whole crew. And again, I already thank the Twins organization and, and this and that, but you know, just the people in Minnesota who have jumped on and helped us raise a ton of dough for this disease where, who knows, we, <laughs> we might not ever had, had any kind of organization like this if it wasn't for the Twins organization and, and mm -hmm. uh, them helping me get my golf tournament started and it's snowballed from there so it's uh, a yeah. big thank you to them well that's true and and without you and the twins and, and what you've done for this cause who knows where our chapter would be and what the state of als care would be like in minnesota so <clears throat> again thank you kent and I'd love to keep you. I'd love to keep you on the line and, and chat ball all day. But I know you're a, a very busy guy. So thanks again for taking the time and, and sharing your story with us on connecting ALS, Kent. It was great talking to you. All right, thanks, Mike. And and uh, like I said, I'm I'm ready for that party to begin at Target Field any day. We all are. We all are. Thanks, Kent. We'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, Mike. It was great to connect with Kent, and despite his efforts to give everyone else the credit to try and illuminate the incredible things he has done for the cause over the years. For our final segment, we sat down with Stacey Lufkin, who is among the most passionate and thoughtful ALS advocates and caregivers you will ever meet. 
She and I spoke about her family's most recent trip to Washington, D.C., and what she believes is necessary from a legislative standpoint at both the state and federal levels. I am joined in studio today by Stacy Lufkin. Stacy is an educator who has spent her career molding young minds in the Twin Cities. She's also a mother of two, and a few years ago was cast into the role of ALS caregiver following her husband Steve's diagnosis. Good morning, Stacy. Thanks for being here today. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. How are things? Do you have a bit of a break now that school's out? Are you working the summer as well? Well, I'm working some, but it's been busy so far. Yeah. I think part of the reason we're here today is part of why I've been so busy. That trip to D.C. was mm-hmm. like the day after school got out. So, no, we haven't had a lot of break yet, but uh, there's still half of a summer left, right? That's right. That's right. I know that it's July already. is a little bit scary, but here we are. Yeah. I mentioned at the top that Steve was diagnosed a few years ago. Was mm-hmm. that 2014? Yeah, he was diagnosed in February of 2014. So, about five and a half years ago now. Does it feel like that much time has passed? You know, there are days when it feels like it's just yesterday that he was walking and life was pre-ALS. And there's other days where it's just hard to even remember him walking. I don't know. You know what? Life is good, though. I think that's one of the biggest things we've taken away is that life can still be good. Your positivity has always been amazing to me and and the bond that you and Steve have, I think it inspires a lot of families and couples that are living with ALS. Well, thank you. Steve, of course, was also a celebrated school teacher. Yeah. And a few years back when he made the difficult decision to stop working, your son, Isaiah, stepped in to help with the caregiving responsibilities so that you could continue to teach and support your family. What has that meant to have, well, both of your sons really kind of rise to that moment and assist with their dad's care? Yeah, I think it means different things on different levels. As a mom who raised her kids to be independent and hardworking and just caring and thoughtful people, it makes me so gall darn proud. Sure. They are... Just, they're wonderful young men. They care about their dad. The fact that they're willing to step in and to provide care that none of us probably at 22, Mm -hmm. 24, 25 thought we'd ever have to do for a parent is pretty darn amazing. And then from the financial side, the fact that Isaiah graduated from college and three months later stepped into a full-time caregiving role for his dad and has done that for three years has been a financial lifesaver for us. I don't know what we would do if it hadn't been for him being able to help out like that. Yeah, and amazing is the right word, seeing Isaiah and Zach, the way that they care for their dad and and are helping with his day-to-day needs. Really, really impressive. You you obviously knew what you were doing and raising those two. Well, I think we got a lot of things right, but uh, (laughs) of course, a lot of it has to do with them and just who they are as people themselves, right? That's right. Well, the main reason we wanted to have you on today was to talk about your reputation as a successful and determined ALS advocate. You and Steve are recognized in the ALS community, both locally and now nationally, as a couple that really gets things done in that arena. When did you make the decision that advocacy was going to be a focus for the two of you? I think it was almost immediately, and that was mainly because of Steve. Mm. Steve started researching, you know, the very next day and trying to figure out what can I do, what can be done, 
who's out there working on this issue, who can we turn to? Yeah. And we ended up going out east and Steve participated in a research study with ALS TDI. And that really opened my eyes to what people are doing in the lab, how much work was going into um, research for ALS and how important it was that people with ALS and their family members get involved mm. because this disease is so rare. People don't always know about it. Mm-hmm. They don't know what it means when you get that diagnosis. And unfortunately, even more, they don't understand that people can live a quality life with ALS. Mm -hmm. It's ever-changing. It becomes more difficult, but it can be done. And that has driven a lot of what we wanted to let people know. And I think as educators, the natural part for us was the sharing and talking to people about ALS and talking about how it was changing our lives. Mm-hmm. And sharing your story is such a big part of that advocacy effort. Has there been a particular issue or set of issues that you felt especially passionate about that you wanted to address head on? I guess, you know, there have been several big issues. One of the biggest things for us is the amount of research dollars mm-hmm. being generated and the fact that there are so many worthwhile causes out there. Yeah. Right. And everybody who's affected by something thinks that thing is the most important thing in the world to them. Right. Right. Yet there is a scarce amount of resources to go around. And we have felt very strongly that the government needed to put more money into research for ALS and other neurodegenerative diseases. And that's been one of the big things that we've pushed for when we've been in DC for the last four years now. Yeah, and you've been a part of that contingent of advocates that has gone to Washington, D.C. for ALS Advocacy Days and recently returned from another trip with the whole family. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy trek to make when you factor in the difficulties of traveling with ALS, Mm -hmm. the equipment and safety considerations. Why do you think that it's been so critical for you personally to make that journey and for you and Steve to be heard on the Hill? For me, it, it goes back to the idea that we need to be active in our in our government and in our society. Mm-hmm. That if we don't speak up, then who will? Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what drives me as a social studies teacher and teaching kids about our government and how it works. And just realizing that the people we elect are accountable to us and that they need to hear from us. And it's really important that we take that time yeah. that we go there, whether it's their office in Washington or here in the Twin Cities or at the Capitol in St. Paul, that we take time to go because when they see a face, it's a lot different than getting a handwritten letter, an email, or a phone call. And it's more likely that they're actually going to listen to you yeah. and to put a face with the name and with the issue at hand. And it makes a lot of difference. And you mentioned the work being done locally as well, and that's just as important. I mean, you have to meet with them here in their offices so that they know that you're one of their constituents, that you are putting them in office, and like you said, they're accountable to you. So Mm -hmm. uh, I know that you and Steve have done a lot here in the Twin Cities in the state of Minnesota that sets up what you do in D.C. Mm -hmm. Do you talk about that as a group of ALS advocates saying, you know, we've kind of got to do it on the local side before we come here? That's a great question. You know, I don't know that we've done a lot specifically about that, Mm -hmm. but as caregivers in our support group, 
a lot of times you were talking about the the stresses we face and the issues that are at hand. And for a lot of people, you know, it's the insurance, health insurance issue. It's how do we deal with unemployment? How do we deal with getting on social security? What does that mean for our family? What other services are out there? And a lot of that boils down to what are our local county governments, what our state government can provide, and then obviously on the national level, you know, bigger, bigger scale. But yeah, it is important to start at home. Right. And in D.C., when you're with that large group of ALS advocates, advocates and their families, uh, does it give you strength to see that many people come together for that cause? And, and are you able to spend some time connecting with and catching up with families that you've met out there? Yeah, yeah, it, it's powerful. It is so powerful to be there and to be with, you know, hundreds of families and a couple hundred mm-hmm. people with ALS um, in all stages from being recently diagnosed to having had ALS for 10, 12, 15, a couple of people, 20 years that are out there. Mm-hmm. And to understand like right in front of your face that this disease hits different people different ways and it, it gives people hope. And I think one of the really cool things is to watch the people with ALS communicate with one another and share the different resources that they have. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. You get to see them, you know, looking at each other's wheelchairs and <clears throat> and then asking each other, where did you get that? Or how does that help you? Even stopping to say, ooh, how did you attach that to your wheelchair? Sure. And then there are vendors there as well. And so you'll see people check out a piece of equipment. And then turn around and head back to the vendor that is there repping their type of wheelchair and asking about that headrest or that hook that mounts something on their wheelchair. And it's empowering. It's fun. It's amazing to see just how accessible that area of D.C. can be Mm. and getting to the Capitol and that you can get in, you can get around. It's a little bit of work, but that's where it really helps to have people who have been there before too because they know the ins and the outs and they understand that, you know, if you think ahead, you don't have to go back outside the buildings and go all the way around and go back through security that there is a tunnel and there's a train underneath and you could take that if you need to Mm. and that that saves a lot of time. So, yeah, it's wonderful to be out there and be there with that many families and people with ALS. And it can also be kind of an intimidating experience to be in those Senate chambers and and not just in D.C., but locally as well, be telling such a personal story with those intimate details and asking for their support for something that's so close to you and your family. As someone who has been through it now a number of times, what advice do you have for people who are maybe new to the advocacy scene and do want to get involved, but are unsure of where to start? That's a great question as well. I think one of the biggest things is just doing a little bit of reading ahead of time, mm-hmm. particularly if you are in D.C. and you're going out and um, asking for some pretty big asks mm-hmm. from the national level, thinking about legislation that's going to impact our daily lives and just reading up on things a little bit and having a basic understanding, but then connecting it to your own life and what does it mean for you? What does it mean for um, the person with ALS? How would your life be different if this legislation doesn't go through? Right. And then just telling your own story and making that connection or 
referencing back people that aren't there in D.C. with you. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are more people back home yeah. who have this disease and how, whether it's about research for people who have a, a genetic form of ALS that's hereditary and could be passed down to their children, mm-hmm. or if it's about you know, equipment, you know, their wheelchairs and the potential of those being out for competitive bid or mm. people's ventilators being out for competitive bid and how that might impact the quality of care and the equipment that we get here in Minnesota, that it's important to just have a little bit of an idea, but then it's tell your truth, tell your story, talk about your walk with ALS because that makes a difference to them. Yeah, And it's a uh, a disease that have so many different facets to it in terms of how it impacts your life. Mm-hmm. And they need to know that. They need to hear that. Because right. um, it's not just ALS, right? It's it's us and other people with neurodegenerative diseases. So all these things kind of come together. And they need to know that there are a lot of people out there. When you combine all those diseases, yeah, there are a lot of people with these issues. And like you said, it, it means so much for them to put a face Mm-hmm. to the issue. Not to say that the phone calls and emails and letters don't help. They certainly do. Mm-hmm. But it's so impactful to be in their office and to say, this is what I'm going through. And like you said, this is my truth. Yep. That's going to resonate with them. Yeah, I think it really does. And you know, as I sit here in your recording studio, there's a, an image on the wall of one of the men who's been with us a number of years. Mm-hmm. And to see him and his children, wow, like... I can't even put into words the power of having our children there Mm -hmm. and for our children to speak up. Yeah. You know, and they're not there for any political purpose. Hmm. They're not there because they understand the legislative requests that we're asking, right? They're there because their person has ALS Mm -hmm. and they've seen it and they've watched it and they don't want to see anybody else have it again. And they have hope. They see the things that are coming out and they have hope that someday yep. some other child won't have to do this. And that's powerful. It is. That's a really powerful message. Yeah. This past few years have been an unquestionably divisive time mm-hmm. in American politics with supporters on both sides of the aisle shouting each other down yeah. on a daily basis. The thing about ALS is it's a human issue. Right. It should not matter which side you're on. If you're a human being, you should want to bring an end to this disease. Absolutely. Has that been kind of a selling point for you in those meetings to say, listen, I know you're a Republican. I know you're a Democrat. That shouldn't matter for this. Absolutely. I think that people on both sides of the aisle need to understand that this is a disease where understanding it is within our grasp. Mm-hmm. It's right there. And for many of them, they don't understand that we don't know why this disease happens to some people and not to others. Mm-hmm. They don't know often until we tell them that military veterans are twice as likely to get ALS and that we do not know why. Yep. That is not a political issue. Right. That is the men and women who serve our country. And they're twice as likely to get this disease. And right now we can't di- you know, differentiate by gender, by branch of military, by active service overseas and in conflict. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And when you start putting those pieces together, 
and you say, these are, are real people. These are people who prior to ALS and maybe even with ALS for several years, maybe more mm-hmm. than just a several years, are contributing to our workforce. Mm-hmm. They are paying taxes. They are contributing to their communities in ways that are maybe even more powerful than they were before they had ALS. That these are real people that yeah. have real issues. And it, it isn't a, a red, a blue, a donkey, an elephant. It's, it's people mm-hmm. and it's American people. And I think that goes back to, you know, it's about the common good. Mm-hmm. It's about promoting the general welfare. We have people who need our help. Yeah. And our people in office need to hear that. Pretty easy to see why you're such an effective ALS advocate, Stacey, just talking to you now. And I'm sure that's coming through to our listeners. The way that you talk about your experience and your story and, and how we need to come together on this is it's obvious. Stacey, has this impacted the way that you teach, the way that you address your students? You mentioned social studies has been mm-hmm. a big part of your career. Do you tell them about your experience with government and, and kind of how powerful it can be to be an advocate? Yeah, yeah, I do. And, you know, that's something that's been important to me my entire career is helping kids get involved and to make a difference. And just sharing with them the experiences I had, I think makes it more real for them. Mm-hmm. And when you can talk about Washington, D.C., and you can explain what it looks like in the Senate chambers, if mm-hmm. you know, when you're on the floor of the house, what it's like, that makes it real to kids. I'm sure. And they need to see people going there doing real things. And I think one of the other things is that ALS has given me the opportunity to just really be real with my students and to be honest about life is hard. Yeah. Right. And it's hard for everybody at times. And understanding that Every day is a gift, right? And we've got to come to school and do our best. Even though we've got stuff going on in our lives, how do we how do we do that? Right. And it's allowed me to really be there for some kids that have had other issues and help them understand that it, you can get up and come to school. Mm-hmm. That we can do this. If I can do it, you can do it. That's right. And, you know, I've also been able then to meet several other people whose families have been impacted by ALS, but I n- never would have known it mm. if. It hadn't been for my family being impacted. Right. And that network is pretty neat to have. Yeah. Well, and and as I said, the work that you and Steve have done in the community and that you've been willing to be faces and voices for the cause has inspired so many, not just in the Twin Cities. And I know that when you attend ALS events, there are people coming up to you and saying thank you and being appreciative of what you've done. And You've really led the charge on so many fronts, and we can't thank you enough in that oh, regard, Stacey. Thank you. On to a lighter topic. Yeah. <laughs> for you and Steve for the rest of the summer, a number of us really enjoyed following along uh, with you and your family on your tour of Major League Baseball stadiums. <laughs> As Steve is such a huge baseball fan and a huge Twins fan, we had Ken Herbeck uh, on the podcast this month, and I know he and Steve uh, have a good relationship. Yeah. Is there any more travel plan, uh, baseball or otherwise, for you the next couple of months? You know, I'm not sure how much baseball we're going to get in. I know that Steve would really like to get to North Carolina. He's got a, a friend in sweet music, Frank Viola, uh-huh. and he is coaching in North Carolina right now, and Steve would really like to get there. I don't know if that'll happen. We did get to see him coach a game in Pennsylvania on our way back from D.C. Oh, nice. So that was wonderful. And the boys hit Philadelphia on their way out to D.C. So they've already gotten a couple 
you know, an independent league park in. They've gotten a new major league park in. And if we happen to get into North Carolina, we do. But otherwise, I think really hopefully getting up to the Brainerd Lakes area again this summer to where my dad and my stepmom live would be an awesome thing to be able to do. Yeah. And then we hope to to head down into the Ozarks the end of August. Oh, nice. And just spend some time in the Ozarks and just relaxing and by the water and playing mini golf. That's our that's our thing. Beautiful. So yeah, that's about it. Good. Good. Thank you again, Stacy, for joining us today and for all that you do to advocate for those living with ALS and their families. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That will put a bow on our content for episode three. I want to thank each of our guests for connecting with us. And as a reminder, new episodes are released on the second Thursday of each month, and you can subscribe wherever you get podcasts by visiting connectingals.org. You can also email us at connectingals at alsmn.org with any feedback or questions you have. We'd love to hear from you that way or on our social media channels on Facebook and Twitter. Connecting ALS is produced by Garrett Tiedemann from the headquarters of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you for listening. Thank you.